what on earth would possess someone to buy training, external training, unless it improved the result? Help me understand. What the <laughs> fuck is going on there? <laughs> Raul Monks, welcome. <laughs> hi, hi. Good to meet you, Martin. Good to see you again. What, what a question to start with. We're in this situation with a couple of prospects at the moment where it is clear that for them it's about not getting in trouble. It's about not getting in trouble in terms of the decision and they feel like going with something they vaguely know that might have worked in the past for them mm -hmm. is actually a safer bet and they're not going to get in trouble for making that decision as opposed to maybe risking it on a company who does it the right way but they haven't done it this way before themselves. This is really interesting. I just had Matt Dixon on the pod uh, last week and his recent research with the jolt effect. And I'm working with one of his old protégés, Moed, who'd done a lot of the research in this area as well. And what you've just touched on is the flip side. One of the reasons why people don't go ahead, even though they have budget, they have willingness, they have authority, they have buy-in, and they have the readiness. Their pen is hovering over the contract, but they will not sign. And the reason is people teach, and I did it for years, and I'm sure you have too, that you don't want to trigger freeze, flight, or fight. Because no. if you trigger freeze in you or the buyer, kiss of death. Fleeing, neither one of you running away is going to result in a positive outcome with regard to this sale. And if you end up in a fight, chances are you're going to end up just being told to bog off. Um, so there's no win there. But there's a fourth outcome, which is flocking. Now, flocking is where we look for solace mm. among our own tribe uh, or other people who are suffering like us. Because what we're doing is we're anticipating, we're catastrophizing buyer's remorse. Most salespeople, and I've trained this for years, Sorry, folks, didn't know any better. Ignorance, okay, pleading the fifth. <laughs> we were told, ratchet up the pain or yeah. paint that better future and give them more unicorns and flowers and pleasant music in the background and waft some smell of chocolate. But none of that shit works when someone actually is catastrophizing in their head. Oh, my God, if I buy from Raul, what happens if... Mm. I'm not really sure. He said something, gave me a bit of the EBGBs. And we as sellers drive over half of those people away because of our poorly trained reaction, basically down to a poor misunderstanding of other human beings. And we don't even look in the mirror what we do. Think about the last time you were dumped. You probably phoned a mate, said, meet you down the pub, and you drowned your sorrows whilst you told him about how unfair life was. We do this all the time. They're human fucking beings. Stop treating customers like ATM machines. Absolutely. Okay. So um, <laughs> there we go. On that note, um, Roll Monks, hello. Hi. And um, what is it? Why don't we just get 60 seconds on your history so people know a, a bit about why you're here? Uh, and then we'll go uh, dig deep, digging deep. Sure. Okay. So um, I'm Rao. I'm CEO of a company called Flume Sales Training. It sounds like we've got a ton in common here. Big beliefs <laughs> that drive everything we do is number one around making sales training stick. That whole 87% of sales training's forgotten off 30 days about reinforcement and coaching kind of drives our business. 
And the other one is around shifting to buyer centricity and getting into the head of the buyer and working out what's going to make it easier for them to say yes, as opposed to just selling hard at them. So they're kind of two big drivers for us. We now have a business which is aiming at rapidly scaling companies and helping them to drive sales change behaviors within their business and make this stuff stick. So back to your point just now, which is... People don't seem to massively care about the result a lot of the time when it comes to sales training. And it's crazy. It's the biggest, what the hell are you doing? And fundamentally, that is the biggest challenge any sales trainer who does stuff the right way, just like you, Marcus, faces is getting people to actually focus on what's going to make this work for your learner and your business, not just what are you used to doing, what do you think you want to do, or what looks nice and fluffy and like you're going to get a good name behind it. I mean, it's a really interesting challenge, but that's me, 60 seconds, nutshell. Okay, so let's just break this down because there are multiple stakeholders in the training decision, many of whom have enormous sway and appear to have little or no responsibility for the outcomes their decisions have on the result. So. The commissioner of training, in your experience, who normally commissions the training? In most cases at the moment, the CRO is the person that we're having who is looking at commission. And for the CRO, what is the job to be done? Fundamentally prove to the board that what they're going to do is going to accelerate them to where they need to and afterwards justifying that that has happened. Okay. So if we look at virtually every corporate training program out there, in-house training program out there, how many of them are focused on that CRO's job to be done? About (laughs) 0.5%. Okay, right, okay. I was a bit more optimistic than you there, actually, Marcus. (laughs) I know, but I'm older than you are. (laughs) I certainly haven't weathered as well. Don't get fooled by the hair. (laughs) Bastard, I can't believe he's got a head of hair there. I'll never make it to prime minister or president. <laughs> so I'm okay, so you've got the CRO who commissions it. Now, you've then got the management layer. What's the job to be done for the management layer that the training needs to satisfy? For them, it's about, there's lots of different areas, but often it's uh, the biggest challenge they've got is I'm actually jumping to the solution there, actually. Um, a lot of the time it's getting accurate forecasting, being able to actually normally hit a specific quarter is why they'd come to someone to do training or suddenly think about training or they've recently gone into a role and they think right we've got to completely rip this up do it a different way that i've done it previously in another company so in terms of what they're looking to do normally is drive specific targets that they're personally focused on and they're normally blaming the team for why that's not happening okay so let's just dig a little bit deeper into that what is the lazy why that they fall foul of essentially not hitting target and assuming that it is down to the sales team okay which means what have they missed understanding what actually drives behavior change understanding actually what's going to get them to where they need to get to in terms of the kpis they need to shift understand that fundamentally they need to get to a specific figure which means they've got to actually embed this training to make sure it does stick and drive behavioral change not just a nice day out of the office okay 
What about people who pay for training? What are their, what's the job to be done from their perspective? When you say job to be done, do you mean what are the blind spots for them? Or no, no, you... what's the, what's the, when the person whose budget it is hands over their financial details or releases the purchase order, mm. what are they intending the outcome to be? Well, I mean, fundamentally, they're hoping it's going to, fix the problem they've got they're hoping that this is going to do it all itself often on its own and that they're going to end up looking like a superstar within their business that's what they're hoping for okay but isn't there another underlying in fact overlaying more dominant driver go for it and i will build the financials sure everything seems to overemphasize the financials Uh, but the financials are a byproduct Sure. No, 100%. And I mean, you you put me into that situation of going through and actually I'm talking about everything that they often will share with us. But you're 100% right. Fundamentally, it has to be about driving that profit, about driving that revenue and hitting that number. It is quite rare, unless we really dig in, which we do, that they will come to us saying, this is where we are, this is where we need to be to make this project, which often they don't see it as a project, project successful. But that financial outcome is a mere byproduct of all those moving parts, many of which are human. Yeah. So then let's look at the HR side of things when it comes, because HR is very often involved in training and uh, training policy. So what is the job that HR is attempting to get done when making an investment decision in training? So this is going to sound a bit harsh, and anyone who's in HR who is listening, then this is purely from experience. But often... I have to distance myself from you now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I'm just as rude about them as you are. I hate to say tick box exercise, but often there is a we are doing training and we need to make sure that everyone's happy within the business with that training. We don't get backlash from it and that people feel often looked after. So... I'm not saying that's always the case because there's some really forward-thinking people out there, but often that is where the focus is. And so what are the schemes that they're likely to be touting or trying to push that benefit from by investing in training and investing in their people? There may be a clue there. So they will often want to be seen as amazing investors in people. There is very much a, a focus on being good employers, um, a focus on being able to engage the right talent when you're hiring people. And there is obviously a focus on reducing retention and incre- increasing employee satisfaction and engagement overall. So again, I mean, back to your initial point, less of a focus on the overall revenue, but sometimes in uh, the the more together companies, that is all tied up in an overall strategy where that is part of what's going to need to happen to drive the revenue overall. And in fairness, it, organizations that don't organize themselves in that way, I think are really going to struggle. In terms of retention, I, I trained a bunch of Gen Z and millennials this uh, last week. And what was really intriguing was just how committed they were around purpose. Whereas I remember when we were that age, it was all about, you know, it, we were Gordon Gecko's crew. Um, <laughs> you know, greed is good. Yeah. And we were Thatcher's children and Reagan's children. And there was a very different feel. How, how did um, that change how you you approach them and work with them? 
Well, interestingly enough, what I've realized in my dotage is that they face the same shit from the older generations that we did. I remember listening to my dad rant about how shit the music was and how unintelligible it was. And it's just, you know, lots of thuggery and you lot don't seem to understand and appreciate how easy you've got it and how lucky you are. And the next generation is feckless and fickle. I mean, we heard all this shit, just like every other generation always has, by old fuddy-duddies who are long past their sell-by date. And the best thing that can happen to them is an early grave. At least take them off the, you know, out of the play so that they stop interfering with the people who we've, um, we're renting the planet from. This yeah. is a really important thing. You need to understand we are renting the planet from future generations. We haven't inherited it from past ones. Uh, And if you don't think like that, then what you end up with is a zero-sum game, and you end up with this awful sales culture. Mm. So we've had a look at HR. Let's deal with the L&D folks, because L&D obviously have um, another set of criteria. So I'm going to fire back to you on this one. What are you seeing when you talk about HR and you talk about L&D, often in groups, they're seen as the same group. So often they will be under the same sort of umbrella. How do you separate them out? Well, they they can be. L&D should be a business function executing or helping to execute the board's vision. So they and the management layer should be working in partnership to be the what to the board's, uh, the how to the board's what. Yep. Whereas in fact, L&D has become a bad and cheap substitute for training instead of a business function that drives growth. And human resources and human capital, which is one of my least favorite uh, terminologies, and their fixation seems to have become a bad and cheap substitute for unpleasant legal advice and being process monkeys, which is such a shame because I've worked with amazing HR and they are worth their weight in gold. Yep. Stunning, organized, humane, compassionate, understand that the objective is to make you into a destination employer instead of, when we're an investor in people and we tick that box. Yep, absolutely. One of the things that we often see is kind of two sides to that L&D. So depending on how mature they are, depending on the other functions they've got within their business that may or may not engage in sales training um, adoption. And that we, we always often see two things. So one is the L&D, when they're asked to go out and choose training, often are very, very, very influenced by the sales leaders. And that's fine. But a big part of it is they don't necessarily ask, why are we doing this? What are we looking to achieve? Back to what you said before. And actually looking at what the best solution for them is. Often what they do is they go with that consensus of the sales leaders who will want a specific methodology or they'll want a specific approach to things. And quite often, the L&D that we're saying are influenced heavily by that and essentially bulldozed into doing it a certain way, which often leads to that indecision again. You get a big party of people who want to do it a certain way, the sales leaders, the L&D want to keep them happy, but 
it's very, very difficult for them to come to a decision. There are others where there is a big focus on let's look at doing this the right way. Those really savvy L&D people who know it's going to be difficult to over uh, to, to get the sales leaders on board and they work with you as a team to come up with plans as to how to do that. So there are kind of different approaches that people will use, but often it is a case of they'll succumb to what the sales leaders want or think they need, which often leads to that indecision again. And I think very often enablement and L&D are, are conflated with one another. Yeah. And both of them are then dumped into, you know, internal cheap training. Which is, yeah, 100%, which is one of the reasons I was asking the difference that you see between HR and L&D, because more and more these days, and in in fact, who we're looking to work with and who we work best with is a sales enablement function. But again, there's different maturities of that as well, in terms of how influenced they are, how strong they are at building that consensus, uh, and how much they're focused on behaviour change, which they all say they are, but actually somehow, uh, sometimes it's it's difficult to get these approaches well, in there. I, I think that part of the problem is that we should be focused on results change and then work out what are the behaviors necessary yes. for everyone to get there. But the problem is that um, uh, we've forgotten in this fantastic array of stakeholders the two most important groups, the salespeople and the customers, neither of whom are normally even remotely involved in the decision. And customers are almost never involved in the training itself. I mean, why would we not involve actual living buyers to be involved so that they can, you know, if they're willing to play, why wouldn't you? It's and such a good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's such a big point, and it's 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 all about this idea of shifting perspective. And I know you're in the same place as this, but as a manager, we often don't shift perspective to the salesperson's perspective and think what's going to stop them doing something, what's going to help them. Same with the uh, salespeople, shift to the client's perspective, what's going to stop them, what's going to help them. We're um, one of the, I suppose, projects I'm most proud of is working with a um, top four bank. I'm saying me, it was my business, not, not me. But one of the bits we did in discovery is we interviewed numerous clients of theirs and got sound bites, which essentially gave the ultimate truth, which is this is what the buyer needs. This is what they've said. Your start point is, this is what they've said. The end point needs to be. And the amount of buy-in that you achieve by doing that, by literally shifting that perspective is, is just amazing but actually you go to clients saying hey we should do this often it's well it's too much effort it's too much energy don't know if they want to speak to you but actually it is one of the best ways to shift opinions is to shift perspective this again i think is one of my real bugbears role which is that there is not enough reflection and there's next to no looking upstream for cause if you look at the massive obscene explosion of technology in the last seven years in MarTech. I, I was just doing a search before we came on and I was looking at the trends. And actually, if you look at the trends in SaaS, the bell curve is just hitting the middle and it's flattening out. Mm. And I think what we're gonna have, because the technology in the last seven years has exploded at the same time as average quota attainment has halved. Mm. I saw your post. The objective of all of that technology and the training is to improve performance. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Am I the, it's not just me that thinks this is just fucking insane. 
It, it, yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. I mean, there's so much money being spent in it as well. And it's back to what you talked about before with the focus on results, right? It's sometimes people get so wowed by the tech and people feel that that has to replace what actually they should be doing, which is making it easy for the customer to buy and working in partnership with them to drive that decision. So I'll come back to the customer and the salesperson in a minute. Quick question. So in terms of the minimum level of technology that an SDR or BDR would need um, at the moment, I I was talking to uh, the founder of an outbound agency a couple of, uh, about a month ago, and he's spending $20,000 per rep per year. And that's what he has to spend to keep up with his closest competitors. Now, how on earth is an SME going to keep up with that? Wow, that is a lot of money. We're a very small business at Flume, growing and uh, can work with big growing companies as well. But in terms of minimum level tech, we've got SDRs and we probably work off minimum level tech, being honest, which is Sales Navigator used well, uh, leads lists to make sure that they're in the ICP. And then not that this is necessarily a must-have, you could do this a different way, but something like we use Prospect Labs, but a way of scaling the sequencing uh, in a bespoke and tailored way um, and growing your connections. And then doing that in a structured way, which, as an example, working with me, I will be growing my connections on a regular basis to a similar ICP or the same one that our SDRs need. So we start to warm those people up. But a lot of it's how you use that tech in tandem with the other tech. And I mean, there's tons of other stuff we could do, but what actually is going to make the difference is about the authenticity, the messaging, and making sure that you're tailoring things in the right way and you can actually help these people. So what doesn't work is getting all the tech and just spamming everyone with tons of stuff because you can reach more people it's got to be about finding the right people that will cause recurring revenue for you and fundamentally that's about doing the right thing right and going out to the right prospects well if you look at the amount of money that is spent acquiring a prospect versus the amount of money spent closing and qualifying the prospect it's astronomical there was an e-consultancy study from 2018 i think and they said $92 to acquire for every $1 spent on closing. That is amazing. Now, when you think <laughs> about the immense upfront waste, the question that goes through my mind, and it must be the, mind, the question that goes through the minds of customers, is surely there's a better way. There has to be a better way than spending more than 99% of your budget mm. on the stuff that ends up in no, nothing, no positive outcome. And telling me that sales is a numbers game is a shitty response. It's lazy. So I can think of dozens of better ways, but why is it that leadership apparently can't? And what they do is they double down on stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think there's uh, part of it is there's an expectation to like if you think about what's gonna in theory be able to say well actually if you can say this tech enables you to get to this amount of people then it kind of talks the language that they need to talk when they're selling up 
fundamentally, it's also in theory an easy fix. It's like a seen as well, we can quickly solve this issue if we do this. And the challenge with it is, is that there's, as you know, there, there is no upskilling of the team to enable them to use this tech and message in the right way and make it fit and integrate in with the other things they need to be doing. But it's the easy well, fix for them, in my opinion, although it doesn't necessarily work. But I'm not sure it's a fix, though, because, like I said, you know, you can't see performance half in terms of team performance. Now, it's not just down to the technology, but that Frankentech um, is creating friction. The average salesperson only spends somewhere between 12 and 21% of their time speaking to the customer. That's AE, sorry. The average SDR, and this is based on Connect and Sales 120 million dials a year, okay, is they spend three minutes a day. I got that from Chris Beal. That's amazing. Three minutes a day. Now, with automation and the right technology and the right list, you can be speaking to six to 20 of your ideal prospects mm. per hour instead of one to two, uh, sorry, one every two to three hours on using manual. But this then comes back to who should build the list? Because normally the poor bastard who builds the list is the least experienced person who knows the square root of fuck all about fuck all. What? Why would you do that? Why would you pay these people and then set them up to fail and then blame them? <laughs> is it me? It's, it's not. And I think there is a big part here. I do, do just want to say the word when I use the, the word fix, what I mean by that is it's an easy one in theory to sell up because it sounds like yeah. it's going to be the fix. But in terms of one of the gaps I think people have with things like list building, there's a massive part of working with your customer success team and further down the chain and looking at who's successful, why they're successful, what wasn't successful, who wouldn't you have taken on, why, and using that to build out through past client analysis actually what works and what doesn't work, right? And then that filters down and your job should be in a list, not to add to the list, it's to it's to, it's to qualify out from the list early on, right? Yeah, well, exactly, because, I mean, to forgive the metaphor, a good pipeline should look uh, like a thong. It should be wide at the top and then get decreasingly narrow and being politically non-PC, all the good stuff should be in the gusset. By and large, what it looks like is an old pair of granny knickers. You know, the <laughs> elastic's a bit stretchy. It's saggy and bulgy in the middle. And then you really don't want to see what's down in the gusset because it's really very unpleasant. And most people's pipe, most salespeople's pipeline is a fiction. It's yeah. people holding on to stuff because they wish it was that way. The obsession with the short-termism. If you're fixated on your short-term pipeline, you're never going to build yes. coverage or range. You're never going to build relationships or trust or intimacy. So you're always going to be reacting. There's a piece there around um, planning as well in terms of a, uh, a kind of age-old matrix, which is the Eisenhower matrix around important and urgent and being able to kind of focus your time where it needs to be. And the challenge I think a lot of salespeople have and sales managers with this kind of short-termism is that everything they urgently need to hit numbers. And so that's where their focus is on that urgent and important, but the important but not urgent bits are often left. But if you look at what's important and urgent, uh, important and not urgent in your year, you'd move it over and think, actually, 
I have to hit this big number. It's going to come from these bigger clients and suddenly it becomes urgent. So an idea of like pushing back your timescales when you're looking at what you're doing and thinking, what do I absolutely need to do this month to get where I need to be in six months is, is super crucial, but it's not indicative of how sales teams are focused. That's not what they're focused on by their managers either. Ah, right. Okay. So we've, we've both reached the same conclusion, which is if you don't address the issues, the weaknesses and the issues in your middle management layer, then all you will continue to do is make them accomplices. Because I see this all the time. Managers who've had to go through this shitstorm, make it into management, and then they continue to propagate the stuff they know is bad, and they become accomplices. Because it's just easier than fighting against the system instead of saying, you know, fuck you, Mr. Boss. Mm. What we're going to do is that we're going to do it right. And the challenge, I think, is that it's too easy to fall into that trap because, as we said in the green room, the Peter principle applies and the mm. wrong people get put into management because you don't want lone wolves. You don't want people who are fixated on winning at any cost. To succeed in management, you have to take delight in other people's success. Mm. And you have to be able to put your needs behind the needs of other people. They do need to get met, but your target is to hit the team target. You only have two functions, hire the best people and create the conditions so they can do their best work and thrive. That's it. But managers have become control freaks and they become report monkeys and spreadsheet jockeys. And um, it's all about command and control. I think there's a big piece here as well about the seeing the gaps. So this kind of whole stimulus and response. So a lot of managers will not realize that they in a way need to be a filter from above down to below. So once they get whatever they know they need to do, not just passing that down in the same way it was passed to them in the first place, actually thinking from the team's perspective, right, how do I filter this down and make it easy for them to do this? And I love your point there as well, which really resonates which is the whole purpose of a sales leader or manager that middle management bit is to make it easier for your team to sell more right so put yourself into the team's head and think what would stop them what's going to make it tough what's the worst thing i can do and normally that is the approach they use what's the worst thing i could do if i were them and what might make it easier and that i, I have a fix is massive i have a solution and i'm going to give antonio credit because he deserves it in fact his boss when he was first the CEO, deserves it. When you hire somebody on day one, have them write out a list of all the shit qualities of someone who would be terrible in the job. That's amazing. And then have them add some more and then have them add some more. And then you say, Raul, now, from now on, I want you to carry that with you every time you're at work. Yeah. Anytime I can ask you, What progress have you made to make sure that you're not committing any of those things? Now, what was really interesting was when Antonio and his team hit a crisis because they did a team survey and it turns out that the board was untrusted. The chairman said, get out your lists. And every one of them had a list. And he said, the reason our teams don't trust us is because you are doing all of those things on the list. Go away and don't do them. And that was the turning point. It was, it was just genius, preemptive leadership. Yeah. Beautiful. 
It's so good, but I, the, the challenge with it is, is that list is so useful to fix stuff, so useful to avoid things in the first place. But when things get urgent and quite hectic and you've got to hit the figure, often that list is what the one you end up following by accident because you kind of fall into all of those things because of the hype that's happening in that period. Okay, so then this then brings us neatly back to the training question around what is it salespeople really need and really want from training? I think there's a number of answers to that. I mean, fundamentally, they want to hit their, their number. They want to enjoy the training, but I think sometimes that is actually seen as kind of one of the main things that they need. And it is, but ultimately they need to shift behaviors. What do they want? They want an, the easiest possible way to hit their number that they possibly can. I don't think most training is often designed to make it easy for them to change that behavior and to prove that what they've done has actually had that impact. But fundamentally, it's about giving them something that's going to help them get to their number as easily as possible. Okay. I'd add to that, especially the uh, the newer generations. But my generation and maybe the older millennials, less so. But younger millennials and Gen Zs, I'm definitely seeing a real desire to grow in their role. We still had that view that you kind of turned up to work and it was a duty, a responsibility. And you just look at the attrition rates at the moment. You know, 72% of all employees in the tech space this year, year in 2022 will have looked for a new job. Hmm. That level of disruption only comes when people are not happy yeah. and they're collectively not happy. So unless the older generation who have the money and many of them have the power adapt, I suspect what they'll find is that the value that they thought they had will suddenly collapse. I, th I think we've seen that correction happen. It's such an important point, the whole progression piece. And it's why so many people, when they're buying training now, are looking for some form of credit, uh, accreditation and being able to kind of prove what they've got. Because that's the other piece. They want to show how well they are progressing as they're going through that. So aligning any training and development to their career progressions does seem to be a, a big area. And it's one that I'm sure you do as well, but at Flume we build paths for different reps and they are progressive paths that take them to where they need to be for their next role, because that is what that younger generation tends to be focusing on. I mean, the other thing with the younger generation is there's big changes in how they need the training delivered as well. I mean, they're all used to different mechanisms that maybe old school me and you might have loved, which not saying there isn't a place for in person anymore, but more bite size, gamification, all of that sort of stuff is a really interesting piece to kind of really prioritize that learning as well. I'm going to push back a bit because I think this is a good opportunity for a bit of a fight. I think that there is no such thing as a learning difficulty. There's only a teaching disability. And when we turn up, it's our responsibility to capture their attention, to make it entertaining, make it playful, uh, make it stick and make it relevant. And yes, there is a huge argument for providing bite-sized learning, but most of the stuff that people come to me for actually is long form. They like my short form stuff, but the long form stuff, uh, I did, the training I did last week was seven hours straight. And there were bits of, you know, interactive stuff and whatever. Um, and we you know, had breaks, but I was mobbed at each break. And I was far and away the oldest fucker in the room by a long <laughs> shot. And 
Uh, actually, to- Tom's three years younger than me, but then there was a big drop. But the, the reality is, if, if people are engaged, they will just participate. Hmm. Um, th- think about the stuff that captures your attention. For, for me, I have entire days go by where I wake up and it's half past four and I come down and I creep down and I turn the computer on and I'm captivated and the whole day flies by and it's eight o'clock and I think, oh, where did that go? Yeah. Now, when people find that kind of passion in their learning, the form matters less. It needs to be relevant. It needs to tax them. It needs to provoke them. And that, I think, is what's missing, because I think training has been um, has fallen into the trap of becoming about technique, yep. about systems and process. And I love systems and technique and process. But if you teach it as technique and process, they'll use it as technique, which means they tend to use it as a blunt weapon and they beat people over the head with a, you know, a negative reverse or um, a dummy curve. And, and you know. It's just insane. That's not how real human beings work. So when I trained, what I like to do is I like to have them throw themselves into a scenario and for them to screw it up. And yep. then we play it back. So then the the reflection is them seeing the car crash. Yeah. Because that self-awareness is important. And then they try it from another angle. And we try it from lots of different perspectives because that's how you weather a salesperson and 30 conversations is enough to learn any industry language that's enough so actually industry sector expertise or selling that product before irrelevant it gives you a fractionally faster ramp up no improvement in result i've got a question for you then so i I totally buy into what you just said from the perspective that you do scenario-based stuff so you bring in an experiential you do self-reflection which i think is phenomenal because what you do there mm-hmm. and i know you know this but it's allowing people to view themselves from outside their own head and probably it should imagine. be a third party out of body experience yeah 100 percent. and shifting from the client's perspective to this class perspective and think why didn't that work what did you do wrong what could you sh-? it gives them a reason to change right which that bell curve a lot of the challenge with training is we go straight into the bottom of that bell curve thinking we can yeah. teach them what to do we're not kind of doing the lean in realize what's yeah. not working so the word bite size can mean two things um and i know you know this but the word bite size could mean three minute interval training <laughs> or it could mean breaking down the content into bite size areas yeah now what you're doing and i think which is awesome and this is why i'm saying i totally buy into that is that you're breaking it down into bite size areas you're not yeah. you're not like running through a thousand things in seven hours what you're doing Absolutely. is you're saying, okay, I'm making this up. But today we're doing I, stuff. I've been guilty of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the bit where I'm like, that's a real challenge because that is what a lot of sales training or training full stop does. And it's often because we've fallen into the trap of doing what the client wants us to do. Exactly. With Let's give us value by doing more stuff. But actually doing bite size over a day, like we, we run SKOs. And we also run QBRs and we do those in a bite-sized fashion over seven hours. But the bite size is let's focus on the thing that's going to make the biggest difference. Exactly. So that makes a lot of sense is the kind right. of whole scenario okay. bite size in terms of the area. So again, I think what you've touched on here is really important that they start to learn how to discern and prioritize. And the, part of the problem is that when you turn selling into a factory production line, 
It's really just about churning through the numbers, making the dials, having the conversations, setting up the demos, doing the demos, passing them over the wall, and that's it. And well, that's not really creating a human to human contact. Mm. And what has been forgotten in the last 40 years is that selling is a service business and it's really about helping the buyer facilitate the best decision for themselves for now and the future, whether it involves us or not. The buyer has to feel safest with us next to them on their journey than without them, without us next to them. Because if we fail to do that, we fail at a fundamental human level to establish a relationship. And that's what selling and being a human being is about. And dehumanizing it and systematizing it and automating it and driving for scale has forgotten that in the end of the, at the end of the day, we exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. Yeah. And if yeah. they don't feel safe, they ain't buying. One of the areas we see that the most, the one that comes to mind when you're talking there, is when we have clients come to us saying, hey, do you do, do qualification training? Do you train on MedPick, Medic, Champ, any of these? And what's really interesting, when people start talking about that, Essentially, they want their teams doing it, but very few people know, mm, uh, have thought about how to do it in a way that builds a relationship and isn't just phenomenally turning off for the, for the prospect or customer. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the extreme of it, where you can get SDRs, BDRs, AEs, whoever might go in, and they literally come out thinking, this is all I've got to do. <laughs> I've got to yeah. get this answer. And it, the experience for a customer is just bizarre. It's offensive, if we're being perfectly honest, in many cases. And um, it's uh, just an an unwelcome interruption. What leadership needs to remember is the price of doing this spam marketing and is all the people who will never do business with your company. And many of your reps are being blocked. Many of your, most of your emails never even make it through the filters. They're not even being delivered. So all that money that you spent on sequences and uh, sequencing and all of that stuff is dead. I mean, you would literally be better heating your houses by lighting the money, setting the money alight. (laughs) Especially today, right? Yeah, exactly. It's pointless continuing to do that. Yeah. The key question here is, is there a better way? And I think what we need to do is we need to start by speaking to the customer. What is it customers actually want from sellers? Is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think fund- fundamentally, a, a massive part of it is around confidence. I mean, back to, you talked about um, the jolt effect earlier and that whole piece. I know that's like kind of in theory later on in the whole buying process, but it is, there's so much risk involved in this stuff. And I think they're realizing they being the buyer that more and more and more and more with uh, the recession coming, there's more focus on people's roles and I need to perform on this. I don't want to make a mistake, but also I don't want to put my head above the parapet. So a massive part is about feeling safe and feeling like this is going to work and make me look good. And there's no chance of me looking bad here. So it's about making it easy for them to drive change in their business, which is not an easy thing to do. And it really means that the salesperson needs to help them understand that buying journey. Because again, I don't think a lot of them necessarily know that buying journey even within their business. 
They really don't. And um, we'll come to that in just one second because it's a really very important point. Mike Bosworth talks about the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, discovery resistance. And uh, Mike Bosworth created solution selling. So yes. he's a, 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 an OG in our world. Fabulous chap. Had him on the podcast and want to bring him back to talk about this particular topic. And he said that the top 20% of sellers loved solution selling, but the bottom 80% stopped using it within a couple of weeks. And the reason was he discovered, it took him about nine, 10 years, was discovery resistance. So what, the way he broke it was by telling a very short story about a customer. So Raul, let me tell you about a CRO who was losing uh, customers at around 15, 20% a year. He'd lost 40% of his team. And six months later, he came in at 300% a quota. But enough about us. Let's talk about you. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, hang on a second. You just back up a bit. Yeah. And then you drag them in. Yeah. yeah. And it's a beautiful way because what you're trying to do is you're trying to lower friction, lower resistance. Remember, throughout hu uh, human history, our single greatest threats have been other human beings. Mm. Yeah. End of the day, we club together and yes, tigers and all of those scary, scary. But with enough of us and with a bit of ingenuity and a bit of fire and offense, we're probably okay. Yeah. And so our ability to cooperate, to communicate, to co-develop solutions, that's what put us to the top of the food chain. Now, I think that's what customers really want from us. They want partners. They want people who have their best interests at heart, who have their back covered, who will challenge them, but they won't turn up and be assholes about it. Yep. Yeah, the challenger research on this is really clear. 50% of top performers have a challenger style to their selling compared with middle performers, but so do 50% of the bottom performers. If you turn up and you're an asshole, you're still an asshole, and no one is going to give you the time of day. Okay. Yeah. Don't turn up and be inhumane. Don't be selfish. Be a decent human being. Turn up to serve. Genuinely care. I think it's so so important. I mean, fundamentally, uh, that's all that the client cares about is achieving their revenue targets, achieving their KPIs. And unless that is at the forefront of what you're doing and you put it out there and you show it authentically, they're going to see through it, whether it's through what you say or how you come across. And the sales people out there at the moment, so many, not everyone, so apologies if you're listening to this, but the sales people out there who, who don't succeed at the moment are the ones who just focus on their targets right it's about realizing to get there you've got to help the client there, there's two um bits of research or people that come to mind on this as well one is the idea of radical candor yeah and using radical candor in line with kind of that challenger mentality so actually having the person's best interest at heart but being confident enough to challenge because of where that person wants to get to and getting into that top right quadrant is super important, but it has to be driven by that belief I just said, which is about helping that client genuinely. If I was you, this is what I would be doing and giving that as a reason. The other one that comes to mind, because you started just then with um, uh, Bosworth and the idea of that story, which I loved is Brené Brown and the idea of, the power of vulnerability and that actually to open people up, you need to be your authentic self and you need to show up and you need to share vulnerability for someone to be confident enough 
to open up about their own vulnerability, right? Which is fundamentally what we're looking to do in that discovery part is get someone to think you're not just going to jump on this with a sales pitch. You're actually listening and you're making it easy for me to talk about this stuff. So I think there's some really interesting stuff there. What are we looking at? And that is exactly how I came to the conclusion of this model. So I've stolen everything, but the only (laughs) unique thing I've done is I've created a slightly different formula at the bottom and I put it together uniquely. So what we have here is the drama triangle. The drama triangle describes every broken dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a triangle. The victim voice, why me, it's so unfair. And their favorite refrain, save me, help. So persecutors are attracted to victims because they can say, you piece of shit, you always, you never. And it comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capital letters, diminishing your identity, who you are. And those kind of leaders and those kind of managers create tall poppy syndrome, minimum effort, no one put, no one takes any risk. Yeah. yeah? And then they complain, they beat their chest and they have heroes, you know, hero status. Um, let me show you how a real man closes. Okay. Now, the most divisive of all, funnily enough, are the rescuers. They kill you with kindness. They help without boundaries, without permission. Um, they mollycoddle. They're permissive. They tolerate non-performance. They won't confront Tim nice but dim. And they'll just let it go on and they'll be- let resentment build. And then when everything turns to shit, they become a victim. Oh, it's so unfair. I was doing my best. And then they become a persecutor. So that drama describes every broken dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have. Mm. And ego thrives on drama. And this is the critical parent voice, the persecutor. It's the adaptive child coming out as the victim. And then the negative nurturing parent. Mm. Now, that means you're probably stuck in the past. You're hanging on to old past hurts and you're dragging old bad scenarios into the present and feeling the misery all over again. David Sarney used to refer it to reach back and afterburn. Beautiful description. Uh-huh. Reach back into history and only you feel it because the person who wronged you doesn't even know you exist. Hmm. Or you're worrying about the future. And in the future, you're catastrophizing about all the things that can go wrong. Now, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. So that's the winner's triangle. So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being a persecutor, you're assertive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. So I'm running late for a meeting, drama triangle version. Roll, it's not my fault, bloody sat-nav. Took me all the way around the houses. Now I'm stuck in traffic. I'll, I'll be with you in, I don't know, about 20 minutes. I'm doing my best. Okay? That's a drama triangle version. Winner's triangle version, where you're being authentic. Roll, entirely my fault. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I clearly left too late. Now stuck in traffic. Satnav's telling me it's about 20 minutes. I completely understand if you want to tell me to go and bowl my head, and I'll just turn around, chalk it up to experience. I hope you can forgive me. What would you like me to do? Same conversation, totally different look and feel. Now, that means you're fully present. You own everything. You take ownership and responsibility. And you're vulnerably assertive. Now the triangle is on its flat base, whereas where the drama triangle, it's on its point and it's very unstable and likely to end up in a fight. And now what you've got is your adult working with 
your natural child that's curious, autonomous, self-directed in its learning and has a bit of fun and your nurturing parent. Now, who doesn't want to work with that? Mm. Someone who has your best interests at heart. They're fun. They're curious. They're constantly um, helping you look around corners. In the drama triangle, you bring your prejudices, your negative expectations, your negative preferences, and you filter your reality as you perceive it, and you end up with an emotional reaction. With the winner's triangle, you don't have any prejudice, no prejudgment. You're just present. What if I am this moment? Nothing else. Yeah. Just fully present. Yeah. And now I bring positive expectation, positive preference. I filter through a positive reality. And I have a rational response. I can choose my response. And if I practiced it and practiced it and practiced it, then my amygdala never gets triggered, which means the other person never has to distrust me. It's so, so interesting, this, all of this. I mean, it is random story, but about nine years ago, I thought I'm going to do a load of stuff where I'm going to learn about myself. And I did some ultramarathons and I did some improv on stage horrible uh, never do that um but the other thing that i did i say do improv great fun <laughs> uh, nothing like corpsing in front of an audience to uh, get you on your feet <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's what my nightmares are about now the other thing i did was i thought it'd be a great idea to go on a silent retreat for a week having never <laughs> didn't really even know what meditation was and I had to go away to Bury St Edmunds well, I didn't have to I chose to and uh, sit in group meditation for eight hours a day and the rest of the time you're obviously not allowed to speak you're not allowed anything in there no books anything you can read their stuff around uh, this Pasina um I probably mispronounced that meditation etc but what I learned on that horrible but probably one of the most game-changing weeks of my life and I've since done it a few other times was exactly what you just saw there so what you've described there, a lot of it is around this idea of Buddhism, and I'm not going to stop preaching about this, but actually seeing the present moment, being mindful, realizing that actually the anxiety and depression and all of those things you've kind of described there, looking forward and looking back, as long as you notice them, and it is about noticing, just realizing what is my belief system, what is, and some CBT comes in here as well, but kind of how is that making me behave? And what am I thinking of? Noticing it, it's amazing. You, once you notice it, write it down, it's kind of like a move on from that now. And seeing that clarity of this moment and how do I best behave moving forward, it's, it's a game changer. And I'm not saying I'm amazing at it at all, but that week going away and kind of, looking at your mind for much uh, I'd love the details about it i'd love the details i'm not sure how insane i would go in the silence of my own mind or the that's noise. why i did it that's yeah, why I, know, I, I know i know that's why i'm asking for the details sincerely genuinely i would like the details yeah it, it was an amazing amazing couple of weeks but it, it's it's funny because actually you can in a way train your mind to be better at that stuff being in that situation for seven days and basically putting yourself into this is now what my world is, you come out and you start seeing stuff a different way. That model was inspired by the Buddhist precept that all misery is down to your attachment. Yeah, uh, attachment yeah, yeah. Is the source of all misery. If you can let go of your attachment to the outcome, you can sell freely. And yeah. when you can sell freely, you can move into a third-party out-of-body experience, which means that you are selling in flow. Yeah. Now that is a sublime experience which I strongly recommend. 
Raul, sadly, we've come to the top of the hour because this has been bloody brilliant. I've had so much fun. It's been um, awesome. It's oh, great. We have to I didn't do think this. I'll be talking about Buddhism, but um, I had to bring him in there somewhere. No, 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 absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's The beauty is we steal from everything that's good. Why would you not? Uh, I don't have a problem with that at all. Okay, you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Raoul, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you have given him that you know he'd have ignored but would have benefited from? I'm going to reveal something here which I have not ever really revealed, which is uh, um, recently I've realised that I have ADD with hyperactivity. And that's really interesting. And I've only recently seen it and found it. And actually, my 23-year-old me, I don't, I think I would have told myself to piss off if I'd given myself this advice. <laughs> but would be to get down to Bury St. Edmunds and give yourself a bit of a chill pill and a time to kind of see that present moment and see it because it, it does make such a difference. I genuinely don't think I would have gone at 23 though. Um, I was too too busy in in the pub. <laughs> well, I recently con- uh, did an episode with Rob Morley on ADHD. Oh, really? I'll send you the link. And we're doing a whole series around neurodiversity. So if you want to come on and talk about your experience around being neurodiverse and realizing it, because a lot of salespeople, especially top performers, are neurodiverse and often fucked up, broken human beings. So Ian Cognac was the top salesman at Salesforce, 100 million he did and he talks about his battle and uh you've uh, got michael brody Waite, phenomenal exited his business for 50 million realized what a mess he was and that vulnerability was so key but recognizing the power of tapping into neurodiverse thinking because one of the things i'm working on at the moment are ecosystems and in particular the power of cooperative working so having many eyes on the same problem, because most people, um, you know, in the same way that we're arguing, you know, we're talking about the tech and they were throwing it at the symptom. Yeah. My thinking is, if you look at the causal elements, the lack of effort, if you identify the causes, especially the intersectional moments where one bad decision crosses another one, if you can identify where you're doing that in the business and you just amend that, it's a gentle tap. It's the old Queen Mary story. 99950 for knowing where to tap and 50 cents for tapping. So the idea is that we have lots of uh, really brilliant minds on the most difficult sales problems because they're not individual problems. They're not point problems. They're wicked problems. Mm. They're interdependent. They're tied together. And if you tweak one part of a bad system, it starts to send it out of kilter. If you do enough of that, we end up with the catastrophe that we've got at the moment, which is halving of average quota attainment while this technology is being focused at the wrong end. So I think there's a really good opening. Mm. The kind of talent you're not going to find in an agency and the kind of talent you're not going to find in a management consultancy. People who live or die by their results and get lots of us focused on the shittiest, gnarliest problems. Like, for example... What really makes for a great salesperson? How do we hire predictively? So we hire someone who succeeds in the role, gets better, and stays. Isn't that what we really want when we're hiring? Yeah. So we then have to start looking at how we pay recruiters. So next year, our plan is to launch a recruitment business. 
uh, where we recruit operators because I, I can teach them how to sell in enterprise quite quickly. Mm. What I can't teach them is 15 years of politics, factions, moving parts, project management. Yeah. But they've sat the other side of the desk. They've made, made bad buying decisions. They've been the victim of bad buying decisions and had to live with the consequences. Now, my thinking is we take those people, we train them at our expense, and then we place them. Yep. And when we place them, they pay, uh, the, the company pays $1,500 a month for life, for as long as they stay on payroll, whatever job. And we continue to train and coach and career develop and help midwife deals so that they're successful because that's the purpose of hiring them. That's so Anyone. interesting. I love that. Is that one in? Yeah, I love that idea. Genuinely, it sounds. But I mean, it's the whole get into the client's head. We were the client. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, so How exciting. So I reckon we're at the cusp of a renaissance in sales. I think there'll be a massive cull. I think because customers don't want to be treated like that. They don't mm-hmm. want to be treated like an organic ATM machine at the end of a long chain of abuse. They want people they can trust. They want people who have their back. And that's missing. Also, I know I mentioned it earlier, you mentioned it earlier, but Matt Dixon with the jolt effect, one of the things that really resonates with me in that is is being able to genuinely say with authenticity, if I was you, right? I've been you, will be what they'll be able to say. (laughs) It's like, hello. (laughs) When when we bought, we made the same mistake you're just about to make. Please don't make it. These are the consequences. And this is with the lead up to it. Oh, fucking hell, yeah. The real trick, my friend Zach Selch, who I have enormous love for, Zach has opened over a 1,000 partnerships globally in over 135 countries. He has a 90, over a 90% success rate when he recruits a partner, making them profitable and sustaining them as a long-term partner. He's breathtakingly good. And he says something which is really, really profound. Our job as sellers is to enter the workflow of our customer in a unique and original way that no one, including them, has ever brought them. And that's our challenge. If we can do that, and this is why, if you haven't read Jobs to be Done Theory, you have to uh, read that. So Demand Side Sales by Bob Mester, M-O-E-S-T-A, is a great starting point. Uh, He was apprenticed to W. Edwards Deming, who came up with Kaizen and built rebuilt Japan and Toyota, and also Clay Christensen, who is just phenomenal. This stuff around helping sellers become co-innovators with the customer Mm. is just amazing. Look, we need to wrap up because I've got another call and I'm sure you've got the rest of your day to get on with. How can people get hold of you? Email raul at flumetraining.com. I'm on LinkedIn. So I've got a crazy name. So I'm the only one there. So you'll find me pretty easily. That's it, really. I'd love to hear from you, though. Excellent. Do get in touch. This sounds like a really interesting beginning of a fantastic relationship. So I'm uh, very excited. Um, Raul Monks, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. Great to see you. Take care. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, and if you haven't, you must be brain dead, then please uh, like, comment, share, and subscribe. Tag somebody who needs to hear this conversation, probably your leadership or management. Maybe send it through um, a few IP addresses so that uh, it's anonymous, but they do need a (laughs) kicking. God knows. And they need the help. Think of it as charity. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Ciao for now. Bye.